0: Slates, I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Stephen Kotkin, a historian of Russia and the Soviet Union who's just published the massive second volume of his Stalin biography. It is called Stalin, Waiting for Hitler, 1929 to 1941. With another volume set to come, this current one ends just on the eve of Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union, Kotkin's monumental work is likely to be remembered as one of the definitive studies of Soviet Russia and its most infamous leader. Stephen Kotkin, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for the invitation. So I wanted to uh, talk to you about Stalin um, because uh, people's lives are, are not unhappy enough that they need 30 minutes of uh, recounting uh, this particular historical figure. So, so tell me, why did you decide to embark on this massive 2000 page already? We're we're two volumes. There's one to go. Uh, biography of Stalin. What did you feel like had not been said about Stalin? Maybe I was crazy. I wasn't going to say it, but yeah.
1: So, you know, I'm in Soviet history, and it's one of these occupational hazards that after someone does some work on this and that, the Stalin temptation arises. Uh, Some people indulge it and some don't. What happened was, in the very late 90s, uh, Stalin's personal archive was released. This is about 1999, 2000. And I had been thinking about whether the regime and his personal rule could be studied with the kind of depth that I applied to the single town that I wrote a book about previously. I did a kind of total history of one town, Stalinism from the street level, from the inside, but in the locality. Could I do the same for the regime? A much different proposition. The same level of documentation, the same level of insight or street level view. And once those documents began to be released, followed by many, many others, there had been big releases before then, but we're talking about Stalin's personal papers, I came to the conclusion that this could be done. And so I
0: went for it. And now here we are. So tell me, your first volume, uh, which which came out, I guess, last year or two years ago, and kind of lays out Stalin's life up to 1928, and does a lot of background on his early life and his childhood. But, but it seems like you were resistant to kind of um, pop psychological explanations for why Stalin became the man he became. So we have this fantastic phenomenon, Stalin, Mao, Pol
1: Pot. You begin to see a pattern here. You begin to see a kind of ruler, a type of rule, a way of going about tyranny, despotism, whatever you want to call it. And so is it really personal or how personal might it be? How do we study a phenomenon that seems to keep repeating itself? Clearly there's something not just in the person, the person matters a great deal, but there's something bigger than that. And so we want to figure out the larger structures, the combination of ideas and institutions and geopolitics that not only make possible a figure like Stalin, but actually make it pretty likely. Certain systems bring about certain types of personalities. At least they bring them to the fore.
0: So what was it about, uh, I want to talk about the, the Soviet communist system, but before that, what was it about the environment that Stalin was in that may have made someone like him more likely? Or were you saying something different? So
1: here we have It's 2014, three years ago when I I published the first volume. Here we have a guy who's born into a poor family on the periphery of the Russian Empire, not someone who's destined for the kind of role that he would later create for himself. So how does that happen? How does a guy who has no special future... When he's born. Remember, it's the 1878 1870s. The big events in the world are Bismarck's unification of Germany, the Meiji Restoration in Japan, the Northern victory in the U.S. Civil War is not very old at this point. And then this little insignificant creature is born. His father's a cobbler, his mother's a seamstress, he goes to school. He does well at school. He gets Russified because it's the Russian Orthodox Church that builds the schools in Georgia on the southern periphery of the Russian Empire. If you looked at this life all the way through 1917, when Stalin will be 39 years old, you don't see the future Stalin yet. So that story is a story bigger than Stalin. Now, of course, we have previous biographies, as you mentioned. Some say his father beat him. Well, I got to tell you, my father beat me too, and I haven't killed 20 million people yet. Still er, still early, but yeah. There's maybe potential, you might say, but it looks unlikely in my case, right? And I could go on about the so-called influences that made Stalin the person he is uh, going to become. So I decided to look at what people thought about him in real time. That is to say, not retrospectively. You know, thirty years later, if they survive, they remembered he was on the schoolyard when they were teenagers, and he said, "Oh, I'm going to get you all." And so therefore they predict that he's going to then kill 20 million people somehow later on. You know, it's the old story, as soon as he put the cat in the microwave, I knew we were in trouble kind of story. Well, that's not the answer. The answer has to do with, Russian power in the world, this very difficult place and its aspirations to be a greater, the greatest power, a providential power under God, has to do with Bolshevik ideology and trying to build a new world that's anti-capitalist?
0: Well, one thing that your books, both of your books um, sort of keep highlighting is the degree to which Bolshevik ideology had... um, You know, there's obviously this large debate about whether Stalin is sort of a continuation of the Russian Revolution or a break where the Russian Revolution went wrong. And it seems like one of the points you want to make is the degree to which Stalinist behavior was actually brought about by ideology in some way.
1: So Lenin in 1917 called his action a coup. Lenin called his new regime a dictatorship. Lenin said, we're going to eliminate whole classes of people, which he called the bourgeoisie, as well as the gentry. So Lenin said all of this, and they began to do this. So the idea that there was some kind of revolution in there, which was better than Stalin, is hard to square with the documents. But nonetheless, that's not the important point. The important point is building a dictatorship is really hard. It's not something that anybody can do. It takes talent and perseverance, of course, in a, in, in a perverse way. But nonetheless, we have to give Stalin credit, perverse credit, for this incredible achievement of building a dictatorship inside the dictatorship of Lenin's revolution. So that's a big story. The story is not whether Stalin fulfills or use the revolution, usurps power from
0: Lenin. The story is the incredible dictatorship that he produces. Well, but you you, you say, or you just said that, you know, that it was already a dictatorship and Lenin's dictatorship and that, you know, Stalin wasn't a break in that sense. But it does seem like your book does constantly, your books constantly highlight ways in which, even if that's the case, even if it was under the larger rubric of Soviet communism, that Stalin's behavior did matter um, every single day that it mattered, and he took huge decisions that another leader may not have taken. The normal idea
1: of an alternative to Stalin, as you alluded to, is a kind of social democratic pluralistic revolution in the 1920s, sometimes called the Bukharan alternative, sometimes imagined or fantasized as a social democracy. The alternative to Stalin was collapse of the regime. In other words, it took somebody like Stalin to consolidate this dictatorship and implement the Bolshevik ideology, the Marxism-Leninism. Let's think about 1928, which is where Volume 1 ends. One percent of the arable land in the country is collectively worked. There's collect- voluntary collectivization of agriculture of the arable land in 1928. So you've got a Bolshevik urban revolution, which is avowedly anti-capitalist, eliminating the bourgeoisie, creating state-owned and state-managed industry. You have a parallel, separate peasant revolution where the peasants eliminate the gentry class and seize the land and become de facto landowners. And Stalin looks at this and he says, we can't have this. This is socialism in the cities and capitalism in the countryside. And any Marxist will tell you that class determines political system. Social relations of production determine the political system. So as the Marxists around Stalin also believed, this was not permanently stable. The thing that he did, which they couldn't understand or, or couldn't believe he could do, was to forcibly collectivize the entire Eurasia, more than 120 million peasants, either deported internally or forced into collective farms. And he did this despite the fact that there was massive famine, despite tremendous opposition that arose, mass peasant resistance. And he did this because he was a true believer in the socialist future and the anti-capitalism.
0: The famine, which your book covers extensively, do do you feel that your analysis of it is different from other historians? Well, we
1: have very good documentation on what happened during the famine. Between 1931 and 1933, bleeding into 1934 a little bit, between 5 to 7 million people starved to death or died of related diseases. That's a pretty horrific famine. Another 50 to 70 million people starved and survived. Much of the literature wants to make this an intentional famine. Stalin intended by these accounts to kill these peasants, especially because many were Ukrainian, and he supposedly committed a genocide against the Ukrainian nation. So we have documentation of Stalin's intentional murders that could completely overwhelm this studio if it was all stacked up. We have hundreds of execution lists that he signed, hundreds, thousands of orders where he ordered torture or murder of individuals. So why don't we have that for the famine? In other words, if Stalin wanted to clean up his regime and eliminate documents showing him in an ill light, he failed because those documents are in abundance. And for the famine, we don't have such a document.
0: So then let's turn to the, the purges and the executions, and mm. um, which are set off, I think, the worst aspects in 1934, when there's a murder of a man named Kirov. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yes. Um, who was a party member who was killed, and this was kind of the this was kind of what uh, Stalin used as a pretext to uh, begin the purges. Do do you feel there there there's been a long historical debate about whether Stalin himself had Kirov murdered as an excuse to do this, along sort of a, like the Reichstag fire um, in Germany, the similar type of debate, but but you come out on come out of it on a different side.
1: So once again, we're dealing with well trod really mythologies about Stalin, right? That he was a mediocrity, that he was a usurper, that he destroyed rather than fulfilled the revolution, that he intentionally killed the peasants and intentionally tried to commit genocide against the Ukrainian nation. And, of course, that he murdered Sergei Kirov in order to begin these so-called purges or what is better known as the Great Terror. So none of this is true. There is, in fact, quite a lot of evidence that Stalin did not kill Kirov. I lay out this evidence in the book. Other people have written about this as well, but it's still a minority view. Most textbooks and most analysts hold Stalin responsible for Kirov's murder in December 1934 because he benefited from the murder. That's their deduction. However... This did not launch the so-called Great Purges. The Great Terror begins not right after December 1934, Kirov's murder, but in fact, two years later. So we need a new explanation. And what is that explanation? So it turns out that Stalin was criticized for collectivization. He felt that it was his greatest achievement— He felt that he had done what nobody thought was possible, force those capitalist breeding peasants, those 120 million souls, into these collective farms and destroy capitalism in the countryside. He did that. No one else could have done that but a figure like him, just as we had a figure like Mao in the Chinese example and Pol Pot in the Cambodian example. Once again, it's no accident that it's these types of figures who are necessary to carry out what only mass
0: bloodshed can carry out. You're using Soviet phrases like it is no accident, I noticed.
1: Yeah, well, that's how the, what the Marxists said, except when they're explaining their own history. Okay, so here we are. They criticized him for what he regarded as his greatest achievement, and they called for his removal, not openly, but they whispered about it behind his back. Instead of congratulating him, instead of lauding him and saying, you know, we were wrong, you were right, they talked about how he had caused all of this excess bloodshed, unnecessary bloodshed. To him, it was absolutely necessary. There was no other way, and he was right. And so he began, his resentment began to boil over. This resentment had developed earlier because of Lenin's so-called testament calling for Stalin's removal. This happened in the 1920s. And I cover that in volume one. And now in volume two, we have the boiling over resentment from the criticism in the party. All during the Great Terror of 1936, 37, and 38, Stalin refers more to criticism of collectivization
0: than to any other factor. Um one of the most fascinating psychological aspects of the purges and executions are the confessions that they um, came along with. W- what is your reading psychologically of what was going on there? Why Stalin felt the need to have these confessions, even though they were obviously many of them fake? W- w- what was it? Um, there have obviously been novels written about this, most famously *Darkness at Noon* by Arthur Kessler. But but it is a it is a fascinating thing how much Stalin cared about them and and. Um, What is your take on that, trying to understand him?
1: You're right. It's a puzzle. Here we have a guy who gives instructions to the secret police about what should be in the confessions. When the confessions come back to him, he reads these confessions. Some of them are hundreds of pages long. He reads the so-called testimony. It comes back to him very close to what he instructed. He then edits it and sends it back for further torture in order to extract the edited versions of the confessions that he prefers. And then, when it's to his liking, he begins to show it to his other minions and say, see, I told you, spies and wreckers all over the place. They've infiltrated everywhere. Look, and they're implicating your own, that is to say, his minions' own subordinates. You see this? You trusted so-and-so, and so-and-so is now implicated. What do you have to say for yourself? So it's it, it's almost inexplicable that a guy would act upon and seem to believe confessions that he himself dictated the content of. But these are the documents that we have
0: for the great Terror. So your book continues on and, and eventually ends with uh, the coming confrontation between the Soviet Union and Germany following the pact that the two countries made a couple of years before that. And, you know, you, you have a bit about Hitler as well. And I'm wondering just before I ask you about the confrontation, what sort of differences and similarities do you see between Stalin and Hitler? Another subject that is many books have been written about.
1: Yeah, so there's a small category of people in Stalin's category, and that would be Hitler and Mao, really. And so Hitler is also an incredible story, and the fact that he's Stalin's contemporary and principal nemesis is really striking. What you have with Hitler is a guy who, in some ways, is even crazier than Stalin. That is to say, Hitler will take risks. He won't take calculated risks. He'll take risks which are considerably uncalculated and sometimes will pan out and he'll get lucky and sometimes won't, as readers of Volume 2 would see. But the thing about Hitler and Stalin is that they both had ambitions. They both had aspirations for their country to rise again as great powers in their own racist or class-determining way, right? The Versailles Treaty of 1919, which many people blame for World War II, was an anomaly. The only way you could get that treaty was if both Germany and Russia were simultaneously flat on their backs. This has happened only once in modern world history. That time, post-World War I, immediately post-World War I, and so the treaty was imposed on Germany Without the participation of Russia. What happened was Hitler and Stalin brought their countries from their knees back to great power status in a single generation. And, of course, they then clashed against each other.
0: Why was Stalin, do you think, so unwilling to believe his advisors and his intelligence that Germany in 1941 was on the verge of attacking? I go through at great length. The intelligence that crossed Stalin's desk
1: in this book, Waiting for Hitler. And we have to look at the actual documentation, not what people later in their memoirs claim they said. For example, Churchill claimed he warned Stalin. There is no such warning in the documentation in real time. We have to look and see what Stalin was actually getting. What he was getting was a massive information. That was all hearsay. No foreign intelligence service ever got their hands on Operation Barbarossa, the Nazi invasion plan. That was only after the fact we saw that. That is to say, after the Nazis were defeated in World War II. So Stalin had overheard conversations, reported hearsay. Moreover, that hearsay was contaminated with disinformation. Because the Nazis understood that the Soviets had an extensive spy network, the Nazis used that spy network against Stalin, sort of like in judo when you use the strength of your opponent against that opponent. And so they fed these Soviet spies with lies. And the lies were varied, but the key one, and the one that Stalin wanted to believe and therefore fell for, the key one, was that the massive German troop buildup in the east, right on the Soviet border, was not an invasion force, but was to intimidate and blackmail Stalin so that he would yield Ukraine and other territories to Hitler without a fight. And this disinformation contaminated even the best spies that Stalin had, and that's what he was reading and chose to believe on the eve of the war.
0: And did he ever um, acknowledge his mistake in any way? We have no documentation that Stalin
1: acknowledged his mistake. He was not a guy to admit mistakes. We see this. You don't say. You don't say. We yeah. see this with a lot of tyrants, unfortunately. He did admit one or two mistakes over time that are documented, including over the Finnish War in 1939 40, which he botched severely. But I, I vaguely,
0: big, I vaguely remember, I vaguely remember a politician on our current political scene saying he'd never made a mistake. I think, I think it's only from our mistakes that we
1: learn. And Stalin clearly learned something from his mistakes because he improved his management of World War II over time. But he was not one to go up in front of the. In fact, when some people pointed out his mistakes, they met an unfortunate fate.
0: When did you start working on this project, the Stalin project?
1: Probably before you were born, Isaac. I was born in 1982, so I doubt that. Okay. So I started working on this uh, in the mid-2000s, that is to say after I had determined that the release of Stalin's personal files and other materials. So in a period of about 12 years, I've produced two volumes now, uh, volume one and volume two.
0: What has changed the most in your analysis from when you went in thinking something about Stalin and you come out right now feeling something different about him or about that period of Soviet history?
1: Yeah, that's the great question, isn't it? I hope so. So many things have changed, but they get buried under an avalanche of new things I discover. In other words, after writing 2,000-page books – I can barely remember the original surprises that thrilled me at the beginning because so many have come since then. But I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the things I really didn't understand was the depth of Stalin's charm. That is to say, I knew he was a very effective ruler in some ways, but I didn't understand how not just intimidation, not just threats and blackmail, but his incredible charm was so effective for his rule. He would bring people into his office. It was called the little corner. It, the Kremlin is a triangle, a citadel, a fortress unto itself. And Stalin's building inside the Kremlin was a triangle inside the triangle. And his office was on the second of three floors in the corner, the little corner. And they would come And he would know everything about them. They'd be summoned. They'd show up. They had never met him. They had only seen him in newsreels or from afar. And he would look at them, and he would tell them everything about them and their work. He would explain the technology that they were developing. He had read the dossiers and prepared. He would give advice. He would give them a new apartment, or he would give them a telephone or some other perquisite. But it was the inspiration that they derived from seeing how in command of his brief he was, how lively a conversationalist he was, how conversant in modern technology he was. And they would leave that office ready to kill for him. And he did that again and again and again. The more you see the inside of the regime, the more you see the profound loyalty to his
0: person. Speaking of dossiers, um, do you feel that this uh, studying Soviet history has given you any insight into the figure of Vladimir Putin? Putin
1: is an interesting figure to be sure, but he's not one you'd put in the same sentence with Stalin. He doesn't rule a country as powerful as the Soviet Union once was, nor is his regime anything like the Soviet regime. There are, however, some continuities. Part of Stalin's challenge was the aspiration on the one hand to be the greatest power in the world, a providential power or a power under God, a special mission in the world for Russia and now the Soviet Union. But on the other hand, a shortfall in capacities, not having the ability to realize this aspiration. The West is somehow stronger. The West is richer. The West has better technology. And so trying to manage this gulf between the aspirations and the capacities of Russia. This is the old story. This is the story that Stalin will use mass violence, not unlike Peter the Great, but on a bigger scale, to bootstrap this Russia, now the Soviet Union, to compete with the West. Putin has also got this aspiration and even greater weakness than Stalin had either economically or technologically. And we see him struggling to match capacities to aspirations. You know, cyber warfare intervening in the U.S., that's a weapon of the weak.
0: Without making a – oh, I was going to ask before I get to that just very quickly. Hmm. Have you been interested by the fact about how unwilling or um, how unwilling Putin is to celebrate or commemorate any aspect of the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik seizure of power in Russia?
1: The idea
0: that a regime can be overthrown
1: is not very popular in Russia today. They don't know what to do with this revolution. They want to ignore it. The whole Soviet period is problematic for Putin. Why? Because of the communism. The Stalin today... In today's Russia, in Putin's Russia, is not the Stalin of my books. It's a Stalin who is not an ideologue, not a communist, doesn't gratuitously murder loyal people. It's a person instead who builds a superpower, who takes a Russia, which is an agrarian nation, and makes it a nuclear armed arbiter of world power at Yalta and other places. That's the Stalin they have. So that Stalin will always be popular. Because that Stalin presided over the victory in World War II. And that Stalin is very useful for the Putin regime. But the 100th year anniversary of an overthrow of the dictatorship, of the czarist autocracy or of a regime in Russia, not very popular.
0: Last question. Was it ever emotionally exhausting to do these books? Um, not Not because of the amount of work you were putting in, but because of the subject matter?
1: Yeah. And it still is. You know, evil is difficult to live with on a day-to-day basis. I'm interested in Russian power in the world, how institution works, the consequences of ideas as well as the contexts of ideas, the way individual agency works within big structures. I'm interested in all these grand historical questions and I have been for a long time. You know, How does power work? Where does it come from? How's it accumulated? And what happens when it's exercised? But this particular case, which is in some ways the gold standard of dictatorship, right? There's never been a regime more powerful than the Stalin regime. And let's hope there never is a regime as powerful again. But living with this on a day to day basis, coming across documents where there's blood, dried blood, it's no longer red, it's sort of a maroonish color, it's fading but it's the blood of the people who are being interrogated and beaten to a pulp and in some cases beaten to death in order to make these confessions that you alluded to earlier. You live with that, and of course it has an effect. At the same time, there is this big story, which is the story of this individual, Joseph Stalin. And as you move forward in time, his biography... His personal story more and more resembles uh, an entire history of the world.
0: Stephen Kotkin, uh, volume two of your Stalin biography is called Stalin Waiting for Hitler, 1929 to 1941. When are we going to see the third volume? Knock on wood, I will write the
1: third volume.
0: Uh, okay, your editor asked me to ask that question So I, uh, I just thought I would um, Anyway, uh, thank you so much And uh, thank you for being on I Have to Ask What a great pleasure And that's our show for today I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilley Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase If you have an idea for a guest Or just want to let me know your thoughts Email me at slate.com. That's A-S-K At slate.com Last thing The specter of Watergate haunts the Donald Trump presidency, but for all the parallels staring us in the face, those who didn't live through Richard Nixon's downfall have no idea what it was like to experience it. That's where Slow Burn comes in, the Slate podcast that's taking listeners beyond the basic narrative they're familiar with and putting them in the minds of people who followed the story in real time. It's Watergate like it's never been told before. Find out more at slate.com slash Watergate.